0: Hello, and welcome back to the DDI podcast, as part of our hashtag DDI discussion series. On today's episode, we have Jamie Bartlett, author of The People vs Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy and How We Save It, discussing why the march of technology threatens democracy and the upcoming US presidential elections. But first, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at ddi.ac.uk and follow us on social media, on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Data Capital Ed. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Hello, my name's David Lee, and I'm joined today by writer and broadcaster Jamie Bartlett, author of The Dark Net, Radicals Chasing Utopia, and the book we're going to discuss more today, The People Versus Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy, and more optimistically in brackets, How We Save It. Jamie also presented the BBC series *The Secrets of Silicon Valley* and the podcast series, which is ongoing. *The Missing Crypto Queen*. Uh, welcome, Jamie. This series is all about data, and both data and control over data uh, are key themes running through much of your work. Uh, it's been at the response of our, uh, the heart of our response to COVID nineteen. Uh, as we've had access to near, near real-time information as never before. Do you think that we have started to see and understand more about the value of data this year and how we can use it to derive public value rather than delivering enormous profits to Californian corporations?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny, over the last uh, few months it feels like Several of the trends that me and many other people have been writing about to do with the relationship between data and society or data and power have sped up and all the sort of potential amazing benefits that so many of us are interested in. So how you could democratize access to that data, how data could be used to better understand big social problems. I mean, I never obviously predicted a large new coronavirus outbreak, but it was pretty obvious that there were going to be big social challenges that could be meaningfully meaningfully addressed using data, uh, that that we're beginning to see that, that possibility, those potential applications. I mean, they're still pretty rudimentary, as we see with the test and trace stuff by the NHS. But equally, I think we're also seeing some of the problems maybe magnified as well, the potential of misinformation spreading around sort of really important scientific questions, the continued reliance and probably growing reliance of all sorts of different companies on technologies that they don't understand. I mean, more and more of the high streets going online, of course, necessarily so as a result of all this. And that brings up even more questions and the same questions, I suppose, about uh, power and accountability when it comes to data so it's been a, it's been such a strange few months for lots of reasons but I, I definitely feel like it's brought into sharper relief all the wonders and terrors of, uh, of, of a life defined by data.
1: Okay and time seems to have passed in a very strange way this year Jamie I don't know whether you found that these months seem to have sped by with, with, with very slow periods in the middle and all of a sudden we are looking down the barrel of a massive moment in democracy, the, uh, the next American presidential election. Um, you write quite a lot about the 2016 election in The People versus Tech, and do you think it's fair to say data, having played a great role in 2016, will play an even bigger role this time around? Yeah, it
2: will play a bigger role in, in this election. It will play a bigger role again in the 2024 election and the 2028 election and pretty much every election from here on out. I think it's really important for people to remember that between 2012 and 2016 there was a big difference in the sorts of the availability of data, the ability to um, target people um, using that data, the improvement in all the various personalized micro-targeting techniques. And that improvement has obviously just continued since 2016 and it will continue to improve. And sometimes I think that's what's forgotten in this discussion. The 2016 election, which of course became synonymous with Cambridge Analytica, was really, to me, just the beginning of a whole new way that we do elections. That's really data-driven, focused on individuals, focused on um, campaigns getting as much as they can about individuals and narrowing down the targeting to ever more personalised messaging, which in the end will culminate, of course, inevitably, in every single person receiving a completely unique set of messages from each political candidate. And I think what you'll probably see in the 2020 election, and it's I think it's the same for all of them, it's a really simple problem, which is that we have a sort of roughly commonly set, commonly agreed set of rules and norms about how elections run and how we make sure they're fair to do with advertising and spend. And suddenly those rules don't seem to quite work anymore with all of this new data and targeting. And that, in the end, to me, creates lots of problems. And one of them is that whoever loses is very able to complain that the process wasn't fair. And then the sort of legitimacy of the election in the eyes of lots of people um, is weakened. And and I'm, I'm pretty sure whoever Loses this forthcoming election in 2020, and it's always good to look at what the losers do rather than the winners. They will say that it was rigged, that it wasn't fair, uh, that one side had an unfair advantage using too much data, sort of sinister, creepy targeting techniques. That maybe the messages of one side was suppressed or censored by uh, the big tech platforms. And, and one of the reasons is is because no one can really understand how any of this technology fully works and when you live in a world where you don't understand how the technology works uh, everything does seem quite unfair.
1: And and is it too easy Jamie to talk about kind of Trump in 2016 and the use of the dark arts whereas you know the Democrats have been arguably just as happy to kind of play that game I think you're much more interested in that bigger picture of what this use of technology and data means for democracy.
2: I think that's the big question, you know, because I've sometimes been a bit frustrated that people have obsessed over the idea that Trump cheated his way to victory by using all this clever data, and they might not have been quite so uh, upset had the other side won, Um, which is not really the question we should be asking. I think we should be looking at whoever wins. How are elections changing how is the sort of how we understand a fair election being impacted by these brand new techniques because you can be you really can be quite confident that whatever amazing techniques were applied by the democrats in 2012 would be then built upon and improved by the republicans in 2016 which will then be built upon and improved uh, by the democrats in 2020 and then and so on, it's a kind of an arms race and both sides are always very keen, and it's the same in every country, are very keen to catch up with what the other guys were doing and do it better themselves. And that to me is really sort of fundamentally changing what elections are are about. And And if we focus on being dissatisfied because the team we support didn't win, I think we might be missing the point of the bigger change taking place.
1: And we're already starting to see that, Jamie, with, with Trump and the, and the and the postal votes. It's a slightly different point, but ultimately it comes down to this, this effort to sort of almost delegitimize the election before it's even started.
2: Yeah, and I just think you're going to see a lot more of that, and not just in America, but all over, because this is not, I mean, what you've got to remember about Cambridge Analytica, they're, they're one of dozens of companies that do really quite similar things, drawing on the very latest advances in targeted advertising for the commercial sector and applying them for politics. And, and this is a you know multi-billion dollar industry that improves by the month. And so it's all over it's all over the world. And and I, I think it, it does go back to this this really fundamental idea is that we don't as a society have a have a kind of commonly agreed set of not just rules and regulations, but sort of norms and accepted behaviors and practices around data use which 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 people when things don't go their way are then extremely unhappy with the results um it's going to be the same i think in all sorts of walks of life so yes elections but what happens when you don't get the job because of an automated cv checker what happens when you don't when a automated um machine learning uh cancer scanner doesn't correctly pick up your uh, your tumor or, or any of the hundreds of examples you could think of where machines are taking more and more important decisions and playing more central roles um, they may overall be more effective and they may overall be more efficient but That's not really how humans think or work. And when when decisions go badly, we we want to know why and how and who's held accountable for that. Otherwise, we we think the system doesn't really work fairly. And that's the problem when you have very complicated systems. Um, If you can't figure out why things are made, decisions are made in the way they are, when it doesn't go your way, understandably, your sense of powerlessness and fury about the process and. And I think elections are just one of dozens of areas of life where we, we really need to sort of work out how we create these sort of transparent systems of accountability over decisions that are made in society.
1: Yeah, I mean, that transparency is the big issue, really. I mean, I think just to quote a bit from the People versus Tech, have we given away too much to shadowy powers behind a wall of code manipulated by a handful of Silicon Valley utopians, men, and venture capitalists? And... You know, you asked specifically what it means for democracy, but you've painted that bigger picture there as well, Jamie. How do we start moving that dial? How do we start moving the debate back to how we use technology and data to deliver more public value? <sighs> yeah. I mean, I know I mean, the title of my book is um, um,
2: How the Internet is sort of Killing Democracy and, and how, we, how We Fix It in Brackets. And the the brackets bit is sort of bracketed because um, I'd say there's there's probably fewer ideas about what the solutions are. I guess I'm I'm as much looking to people like you to to figure these questions out. Um, but clearly there are. I think there's going to need to be quite a lot of experimentation, and it's sometimes really frustrating because there are some relatively simple things I think that can be done, but we don't seem to do them. I mean. If you think about the election laws that we have in this country and in pretty much every other democracy, they, they are still based on the idea that most political spend during election will be through TV and billboards, and we'll be able to monitor that spending and make sure it's roughly either either at least transparent so we can see who's spending what. And we we all we all of us get to see what sort of adverts and messages are being put out. You you know about the sort of party political broadcast where each party has a set amount of time on the national broadcaster to put their message out. We all get to see what everyone's seeing. And so there's some sense of fairness about that and some sense of transparency. And yet there's no similar rules when it comes to digital spend. I mean, I, I but I don't think it's that difficult. Why, for example, do we not insist that every political party publishes every single advert that it it has put out there during an election and and how it's targeted people with those adverts. Now, that might end up creating the world's biggest Excel spreadsheet. Millions, especially as micro-targeting gets better, millions of targeted adverts and who they've targeted in what age demographic and what gender and so on and what region. Yeah, that's going to be a really big file. but we've got amazing technology now that can allow us to analyse that and say, oh, you know, this party seems to be putting these messages out to this group of people, and it's really important that the public knows that because maybe that's inaccurate or unfair. I don't see why we can't do that. All that does to me is brings the kind of, the laws we have around elections up to date, or at least not hopelessly out of date like they, they are now. And at the very least, what it would do is just demonstrate to people that somebody somewhere is on this. Yep. You know, so the, the, the regulators are thinking about it. They're working on it. They're trying to come up with solutions. Whereas at the moment, it all feels like a bit of a
1: free-for-all. Yeah, cause I think, I think you, said, you said before, Jamie, that we can't expect the tech, tech platforms to be responsible for every single piece of content that they hold that's just unfeasible but actually that paid for content is something we can monitor something we can collate and something then we can maybe draw some conclusions from
2: yeah there does seem to be a little bit of a there's a sort of don't really know how to describe it but it's there's two extremes on the argument when it comes to legal responsibility for content at the moment. What One one side seems to say the big tech platforms are m- m- merely delivery mechanisms for, plat- for, 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 for content. They are neutral. They do not have any legal responsibility for the content they carry, which I do understand. And I think when that rule was first introduced in the 90s, it was a very good way of making sure that the, the this brand new and exciting sector actually had a chance to survive. Um, And then you've got the other side, and Donald Trump's been basically saying this when he's talked about repealing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, that technology platforms like Facebook should be seen as newspapers. They deliver content, so they should be legally responsible for every single thing that's published on them. And I think both of those extremes sort of lose the, the, both the practicality of how you do this and the benefits that come from having free open social media platforms. And I'm, I'm interested in what, what what's the sort of middle ground and what are the sort of things we can do just to make those tech companies a bit more responsible but without destroying them completely. Because if they had legal liability for every piece of content they posted, they would surely collapse almost immediately. They'd need to employ the entire world's lawyers just to keep going how do we find that middle ground well there is there is there is a middle ground there and some of it's about making the technology platforms just slightly more responsible for certain types of content and and i think the most important way they could do that is to be held legally responsible in the same way that newspapers are for paid content for any time they receive advertising anytime they receive sort of money in order to post things on their site, they should be fully legally responsible for that content. And that includes political advertising because that's where they make their money. And it seems to me pretty fair that if you're going to be paid money to host content, you should also be then legally responsible for it. So if, for example, there is paid for disinformation and misinformation and hate speech and whatever else, that they are receiving money directly in order to publish then I think they should be held legally responsible for that but I don't think they should be held legally responsible for every single last thing that each of us puts online because that would be completely unworkable
1: do you have any sympathy for the tech companies Jamie you know they started out with this genuine belief that they could change the world and connect the world uh, and now everybody hates them you know do you have any sympathy <laughs> Yeah, I think the, I think the problem for the tech companies, and I, and I
2: think so many of the the top people are, they really do believe in the power of their platforms to improve the world. They're, they're not just money grabbers who are, you know, dissimulating, lying about this. But it, it's obviously you know, when people are multi-millionaires and billionaires, your sympathy sort of wanes slightly, obviously. But I think the I think the problem for them has been that. For many, many years they they told everyone that they weren't just ordinary companies that they were they were better than that they were different they were on a social mission they wanted to improve the world and so we i think we as a result we 've been holding them up to a higher standard that the stand, the standard that they asked us to, which was don 't see us as an ordinary company we 're on a mission to improve the lives of millions of people and connect the universe and so on. And so when they fall short of that I think it's it's fair enough that we um, we we hold them in, in in low regard because it turns out in so many ways they're behaving just like any other type of company employing huge numbers of um, lobbyists to um, to make sure the different laws and regulations go their way um, you know, really really tough anti-competitive behaviors at times which okay other companies do that too but they weren't supposed to be like other companies.
1: And do you think, Jamie? We're about we're about five years almost on from probably when you were writing uh, the People versus Tech. You know, are are you optimistic that we can sort of move that debate away from uh, private profit to tech for some kind of public good and 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 something that serves our democracy better? As you said earlier on, there's no easy answers here. Um, you lay down some of your thoughts in the book but are you are you broadly optimistic Jamie that the conversation is moving
2: well I don't think it's five years I'd say it's probably only two or three years Um, and although like you say time has been flying by hasn't it so maybe it's not but um, conversation has moved on I mean just leaps and bounds in the last couple of years when it comes to Public awareness about privacy, maybe even more important, lawmakers' interest in these subjects. Lots of surveys and, and polls show that people care about these subjects. That they're they're changing their behaviours. They're introducing you know, they're, they're introducing new uh, privacy enhanced behaviour. There's also loads more technology that helps you improve your uh, privacy online, and with more adoption of that, I think things will change. So sh- huge. Huge change in the last couple of years, which has made me quite optimistic. Because it, in two thousand and yeah, let's say it was two thousand and seventeen. Really, when I started writing this properly, I'd say I was completely hopeless. No, we're we're we are heading headlong into some kind of weird AI-powered autocracy, where the world is controlled by a tiny number of huge, powerful companies, and there was not. I couldn't really see many ways out, but. Democracies are amazing things, how they adapt and change and, you know, uh, evolve uh, to meet certain challenges. I guess the issue is, the bigger issue is, it's, it's not just about how large technology companies have a sort of centralising tendency and the way they get bigger and bigger and there's, there's almost a natural... F- sort of monopolizing tendency in large tech companies, because they get bigger, they get more users, they get better tech, which means they get more users, which means they get better tech. And that, that's, I suppose, the dominant narrative of the last few years. It's, it's bigger than that. It's about a fundamental incompatibility between a world created in an, it's sort of an analog age so our education system, our competition law, our banking system, our, how our, literally how our elections and politics work, how we consume information, how we, all these different things. We've created a world that was designed for an analog age. And then suddenly, in the space of 15 years or so, the world has just been flooded with data and information. And some of that's due to the tech giants, but some of that's just due to the way that computing power, computing storage space, uh, connectivity has just, just transformed how we understand what data is. And that's not the problem of the, the big tech firms. That's a much wider issue about having an analog world, but that's suddenly completely sort of digitalized. And so, I don't think it's just about how we deal with the big powerful tech companies. It's about how do we change all of our laws and our norms and our regulations so it's fit for a world that's digital rather than analog. And, and that's, a, that's a much bigger question.
1: Jamie Bartlett, that's a great place to end. Thanks very much for joining us today. Cheers.
2: Thank you very much.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you hit review and check out ddi.ac.uk for a selection of upcoming podcasts and webinars and articles as part of our virtual engagement series, hashtag DDI Discussions. Make sure you follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Data Ed. Thanks for listening and have a great day.